Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pause right now to acknowledge that you are the sovereign ruler over all of your universe. We thank you for the fact that your control over all things, big things and little things, is the pillow upon which we can lay our head at night and rest, knowing that nothing happens outside of your control. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that, that you are a a God mighty to save and mighty to sustain and mighty to do above and beyond all that we can ask or even think. We thank you for the greatness of the God that you are. And Lord, I, we do pray today as we think about Honduras and Central America and those places that are being impacted by these tremendous natural disasters. Father, we pray for those people that you would be merciful to them, that you would be compassionate to them, that you would... Lord, reveal Yourself to them in a mighty way during these times. Father, I pray for our brethren who are being impacted as well in these countries and these places, that, Father, You would cause them to look to You and to trust in You, Lord. I pray for Your church, the church at large, of those who follow Christ and worship the the true and living Savior, that, Lord, we would support one another in prayer and we would support one another in resources and that, We would not forget about those who are in other countries who are our brethren. Father, comfort them. Be the encouragement of their hearts. Reveal yourself in a sense of your presence in a mighty way during these times. And Father, we pray for special grace even now for me, Lord, your servant, and for your people, that Father, as we open up your word, that you would help us to have humble, teachable hearts, that we would learn the things that you you would have us learn this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45 is our passage for this morning. And I want to begin by reading these verses for us. Mark 10, verses 35 through 45. This is the Word of God. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant." And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. This is yet another one of those examples where we see that the disciples simply don't get it, do they? They don't get it. Jesus' followers, His disciples, the twelve, actually minus one, the eleven, had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the long-awaited One. To some extent or another, they understood this. What they didn't fully understand 
was the timing of the kingdom of the Messiah. That before Jesus would usher in His kingdom, that there would be a time where He would suffer and He would die and be buried and three days later rise again. This was all if they would have been paying attention and interpreting Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures properly. This was all in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And what's so mind-boggling here, mind-blowing about this particular passage, is that even as Jesus keeps talking about His suffering, keeps talking about His impending death, the disciples just don't get it. And what they're ultra-concerned about more than anything else, it seems, is procuring their place in that future kingdom that is coming. In fact, back in Mark chapter 9, verses 33-37, to we see how right after Jesus reveals for the second time what's about to happen to Him, they're still fixated with greatness. Who is to be great? Or who is to be greater in the kingdom in the future? And you would think that even after Jesus keeps instructing them and correcting them, you would think that even after that, that they would get it. But later on, even at the Last Supper... They would struggle with pride in that upper room with a desire to be first arguing about which one of them was the greatest in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. And Jesus further teaches them about the fact that he who is last of all and servant of all is greatest of all. And so rather than understanding what's soon to happen to Jesus, what we see here is that these disciples are fixated on greatness, on prominence, on prestige. And what we'll see in our passage is our Lord Jesus taking this opportunity to teach His disciples about what true greatness consists of. And that true greatness in the kingdom is unlike the greatness in the world. You know, I'll never forget as a boy growing up in Mexico and being trained to box for a period of time as a little boy. And my greatest heroes, of course, were the Mexican boxers there in our country. Those are the individuals that many kids look up to and and also the soccer players. But everybody knew in Mexico, even as a boy, I remember this. Everybody knew in Mexico who the greatest boxer of all time was because he constantly said he was. And that was Muhammad Ali. You remember him? Muhammad Ali, who popularized the catchphrase, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. He would intimidate his opponents. He would constantly be talking before the media about his greatness and all of his accomplishments and why he was the greatest fighter and the most skilled guy and all of that. With great pomp, he would declare, I am the greatest ever. I am the greatest ever. And before other boxers even got into the boxing ring with him, they would already be intimidated and they would lose to him in dramatic ways. But you know what? It was interesting later on what happened with Muhammad Ali. Eventually, as, we, as you know, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and he quickly deteriorated over the years and there was less and less pomp and less and less pride, at least on the surface, even though it was certainly instilled in the heart any opportunity that he had to speak on his greatness. But he quickly deteriorated and eventually in 2016... Muhammad Ali died, and his tomb is with us to this day. He who was great, who used to boast with great pomp that he was the greatest of all, wound up with the same conclusion to his life 
that everybody else, how everybody else concludes, and that is death physically. Proof that worldly greatness is not eternal, right? It doesn't go beyond this life apart from Christ. Worldly greatness passes away without the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, too often we should take a lesson from individuals like that. Not with an arrogant kind of spirit, but with a sense of, Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your grace and showing me a different way. Because you see, even as people, as Christians, our tendency is to define greatness by the standards of this world. It's not just athletes who struggle with this. It's not just entertainers, actors, businessmen, successful people in our society, even politicians, but even Christians can struggle with a distorted view of what true greatness consists of. And that's why what our Lord Jesus teaches here, this text is so important for us to take note of and and with sobriety really learn from what our Lord Jesus says here. Because our Lord reminds us here and reminds His disciples that the way up in God's kingdom is first and foremost to lay low, to stoop down to serve God and others, to live with a sense of humble condescension in the way that you give your life to the Lord by serving other people around you, beginning with those of the household of the faith but extending to the non-believing world where we serve people and we lay down our lives for other people and invest ourselves into souls which go on beyond this life into eternity. So we see this lesson taught by our Lord by way of two primary headings here. The first one we see in verses 35 through 40, if you're taking notes, we see the self-seeking request. We see the self-seeking request. And what we see in these opening six verses here, verses 35 through 40, is Jesus going back and forth with a dialogue with two of his disciples that expose their self-seeking hearts. But as we're going to see, not only are the the self-seeking hearts of these two exposed, but also the rest of the disciples who really, if they had the opportunity, as they did other times, would articulate the same things that these two individuals articulated to the Lord. Notice how these two disciples come to Jesus in a very sneaky, subtle way, don't they? Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. You're familiar with these two guys. We've seen them before. They were brothers, both fishermen who had left their business to follow after Jesus. They left their businesses to to commit their lives to Christ. And they were affectionately referred to as the sons of thunder because of their fiery personality. One time when certain individuals didn't listen to a request by our Lord, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire from heaven to consume them? (laughs) Yeah. And our Lord Jesus, of course, rebukes them. They had a very fiery personality, these two. They were also two members of the Lord's inner circle of disciples, along with Peter, They were recipients of special privileges, such as in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus is transfigured before them. James and John were there as well. And Jesus unveils and gives them a glimpse of His glory as the eternal Son of God. And so, these two come up to Jesus, verse 35, 
saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Maybe building on on the, the special privileges that they had had with our Lord, as that inner circle, they want special treatment. And notice how they come to Jesus very interestingly, wanting Jesus, wanting to get him to, to pledge, to guarantee to them what they want. Okay? This would be like one of your kids saying to you as they snuggle next to you on the couch, Mom, Dad, accompanied with squishy hugs as they say it that way, and maybe a blankie, right, to cover you and them. Mom, Dad, there's, there's something that I want to ask of you. But before I tell you what it is, you need to promise me that you'll say yes. How many of you kids have done that? I did it to my parents. Maybe not in the same exact way, but, you know, we've all done that. What are you thinking as a parent at that moment? Hmm, you filthy little rascal, you, right? Maybe not filthy part, but, you know. Now, those are kids. But these are grown men, which makes it even worse what they do here. They come to Jesus, not openly telling Jesus what they want, but in a very subtle, very sneaky sort of way, they come to Jesus with this request that is audacious. Now, adding to this, Matthew 20 and verse 20 tells us that it was the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of Jesus. So think about that. Even their mama comes with them. Their mother was with them when they come to Jesus. Most likely she's the, the spokesperson representing her kids, going to bat for her kids. How many of you moms can't identify with this right here, right? The mama bear part of you wants to go defend your kids, wants to go to bat for your kids, wants to make sure that your kids don't get the short end of the stick, right? Moms especially can identify with this. And what makes this even more telling is that most likely, most believe that this was the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. And so if this is the case, and I think it is, then think about this. James and John are family. They are first cousins of Jesus. And so those family ties, those family connections are being leveraged here for them requesting this particular thing from our Lord Jesus. Well, our Lord can smell trouble here, right? So look at verse 36. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Don't you love our Lord? Hey, guys, no games here. Show me your cards. Jesus is not going to play this game with them. He's not going to get caught up in their little trap here. I want you to openly declare what you are after. Verse 37, they said to him, Grant, literally gift us, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Man, what a request. Now keep in mind, this is on the, on the heels of Jesus talking to them repeatedly and continually about his impending death. What timing for them to be bringing the, this request before our Lord and the audacious nature with which they do it. 
All they can think about is the place of prominence in the midst of his impending death. That's what sitting to his right and his left meant. These are the highest places of honor, the highest places of prestige in a royal court, in a king's court. Notice verse 37, in your glory. We want these places in your glory. They know to some extent or another that one day in the future, Jesus will have the place of glory. After all, they've seen back in Mark chapter 9, a glimpse of Jesus' glory as the eternal Son of God, of His splendor. Now, before we think the absolute worst about these guys, it's important to note that they asked this Because according to Matthew 19.28, before this situation happens here, before this, Jesus had just said to them that one day in the regeneration, that is, at the time of making all things new, they would sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so their request is not out of nowhere, but they want this now. And it also reveals to them... to. Reveals to us what was in their hearts. They want some of the glory. They don't want all of Jesus' glory. Just just some of it. Give us the second and third places of prominence, Master. You have the, the primary place. We're not asking for the steering wheel. We just want to ride shotgun with you. We want a place there with you. The first time I read this, I thought to myself, what a request. What a request. And, you know, we can look at their behavior continually, these disciples in the, in the Gospel of Mark, and think to ourselves, what a bunch of losers, these guys. How audacious a request is such as, as they ask here. And yet isn't this a struggle for us as well, brothers and sisters? It isn't that we openly do what these two disciples did. It isn't that we openly desire to rob Jesus of His glory. We wouldn't dare. Of course not. We just want a little bit of the glory. Maybe we just think about it in our minds. Maybe we just, we just consider this in our thinking where nobody else can see it except the Lord. Give me some credit, Lord. People, don't you guys see how much I do around here? Don't you see how much I serve? Give me some recognition. I deserve better than this. And let's be measured here and balanced. We're not talking here about not showing gratitude for one another. We're not talking here about failing to affirm God's work in one another. Expressing thanksgiving to the Lord for one another is is good and biblical and right. Just read some of the letters in the New Testament that, that where, where these apostles are writing to churches full of people who are imperfect, who are saved by God's grace. They have their own struggles and their own issues. But how do they open up oftentimes? By giving thanks. By expressing gratitude for one another. So that is a good thing to do. But what we're talking about here is, is pride. Pride seen in a desire for self-glory. Pride seen in the the appetite, the craving uh, for self-exaltation. An attitude of pride that subtly and maybe imperceptibly seeks to rob God of His glory. That's what we're talking about here. Robbing God of His glory is something we must never do. 
And Jesus is about to expose this in the hearts of these disciples. But listen to what God says in Isaiah 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another and my praise to graven images. And then Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I will act. This is God speaking. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. There's one thing that God will not share amongst other things and that is His glory, His fame. He will not share that with any of us. Self-seeking pride, self-exalting pride, beloved, is the root of every single sin that flows from every single human being in the world. And this is why we need to walk in humility and daily be asking the Lord, Oh Lord, help me to live in the light of who you are, that I would be brought low and walk in humility. We need to be people who, by God's grace, think rightly of ourselves in the light of the holiness and the glory of God, not in comparison to one another. These disciples are once again struggling with a wrong view of themselves again. Now notice how our Lord can see their self-seeking attitude. So he has strong words for them in verse 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking In other words, you don't understand what your request involves. You lack knowledge. You lack insight. You lack understanding. What do they not understand? What's about to happen to him? And later on, what's about to happen to them? That before exaltation comes humiliation for anyone who seeks to follow after Jesus. Because that that is the pattern that he set One of humiliation before exaltation. Look at verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Notice two symbols that are used by our Lord Jesus to make a a point. First, there is that of drinking a, a cup, a cup, which in the Old Testament, the cup would be a could be a symbol in certain contexts of, of joy. In the great psalm of the Good Shepherd, Psalm 23, King David writes this in Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. In that context, the context that the cup is equated with a sense of, of joy that David has over God's lavish blessings upon his life. My cup overflows. You are so good. It's a a cup of gratitude, of joy over God's blessings upon his life. But in other contexts, the cup was also a symbol of retribution. And more specifically, a symbol, a metaphor for God's judgment. Such as in Psalm 75 and verse 8, where the psalmist writes, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, in the hand of Yahweh. And the wine foams, it is well mixed, and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. There the psalmist is speaking of of the cup of God's judgment, of God's wrath that is fermenting, that is getting ready to be poured out on the wicked. 
It's a cup of wrath. It's a cup of punishment. It's a cup of judgment. And this is a sense uh, in which Jesus is using this here. He's speaking of his coming suffering specifically by way of God's judgment upon him for sinners. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? He's speaking not only of his physical suffering. Please note that. He's speaking more so of the cup of God's wrath for our sins on the cross. Christ would be the the propitiation, the wrath-removing sacrifice for sinners. It's that cup that he's talking about. Jesus was headed to the cross as sin-bearer, as the one who would absorb God's wrath for our sins. And this was why Jesus, later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, is in great anguish, not so much because of the physical suffering that will be imposed upon him, but because of the separation that he will experience between himself and his heavenly Father. And he says in Luke 22, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What cup was that? The cup of God's wrath for our sins. You want to know this morning who we need salvation from? God. God's coming judgment. You want to know this morning, believer, Christian, what or more specifically who God saved you from? He saved you from Himself by sending Jesus into the world as the great sin bearer and wrath absorber for your sins and for my sins who have believed in Him. Jesus drank the fullness of the cup for us of God's judgment for our sins, satisfied God's justice for us. Secondly, notice he uses a symbol of baptism. He says in verse 38, are you able to to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now we understand baptism or baptized to mean a, a dipping or this immersing of someone into water, right? That ceremony that we watch sometimes, which symbolizes the new birth that someone has experienced on the inside. They're immersed into water. They're dipped into water, saturated into water, go underwater. But the word could also be used metaphorically, and I think in this context it's the case, to speak of being overwhelmed, of being flooded or or saturated with, with calamities. And it's this sense that the Lord is using the word baptize here. Jesus would be baptized or he would suffer or be immersed in calamity for our sins. Oh, we read about that in Isaiah 53, don't we? The great chapter of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 verse 5, speaks of the sufferings of the servant. He, the eternal son of God, the suffering servant, was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, to crush His Son, putting Him, His Son, Christ, to grief. For who? For our sins. Such was the baptism, the the saturation of, of calamity that Jesus would experience for our sins, brothers and sisters, that would ultimately culminate At the cross of Calvary. That's what our Lord is talking about here. And I hope especially during these times. That's why I just appreciated what Greg did up here. 
and reminding us by way of the Lord's Supper and Communion of our great Savior. I pray that especially during the holidays, it should be every day of our lives, but especially during the holidays that you and I would return again and again and again to the foot of the cross. And to be reminded of our great Savior, what Christ went through for us. We never get past the cross and the resurrection, brothers and sisters. In fact, to the extent that you and I build upon the shoulders of Christ's finished work by His grace and in the power of the Spirit, we will live victorious Christian lives in anticipation of our King's return. We never move past the cross. We never move past the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We never move past standing upon the shoulders of the victorious, risen, exalted Jesus. We never do. And maybe that's some of our problem this morning. Who are struggling with our sin and we're not seeing much victory. Maybe, would it be possible that you're trying to do things on your own strength instead of coming back to Jesus, the person and the work of Jesus, and being reminded of the fact that not only were you rescued by faith in Jesus from the penalty of your sin, but you're continually rescued by Jesus from the power of your sin. We never move past the cross. And Jesus keeps bringing them back to this again and again and again. This is where I'm headed. And later on, post his his resurrection and his ascension, they're going to understand the implications of why he would bring them again and again to this. Why he spoke so much about this. So these disciples don't get it. And they don't understand here the implications of their request. And that's shown by what they answer in verse 39. Notice, they said to him, we are able. Shocking. Really? You're able? Now, in fairness to these disciples, I think they're being honest. I mean, this is what the text says. This was an honest answer. And you know what? They were showing loyalty to Jesus. These disciples are willing to follow Jesus all the way to opposition and persecution if need be. But little do they understand to what extent Jesus will suffer and they will suffer. Look at verse 39. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Jesus is affirming that they will have a dose of his suffering. They will partake of a dose of his calamity. By this, he's not saying that they will suffer in a redemptive way. We know that. He's going to suffer differently than they did. He's going to the cross as sin bearer, as the substitute for sins, to pay for sins. Only he could do that. But they will suffer indeed in a different way, though not redemptive. Later on, it's in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, about 10 years later, that the same Jesus will be the first apostle to drink the cup of martyrdom at the hands of one wicked ruler by the name of Herod Agrippa I. Why? Because of his connection to Jesus. And what about John? 
What about John, though? Though he lived well into his 90s, John would experience opposition. He would experience persecution. And even at one point in his latter days, as we know, John the Apostle, the great son of thunder who had been humbled by Jesus during his lifetime, was banished to the island of Patmos where he received the words of revelation which we now have in the last book of our Bibles. John would suffer greatly. These two would suffer indeed. They would partake of the sufferings of Christ. And I want to remind us this morning, even as Americans living in, in uh, Christians living in America, brothers or sisters, such a taste of suffering is what awaits every true follower, genuine follower of Jesus. I think as we hear, and we should read and observe some of the things that are happening with our brethren in other countries, even during this whole COVID situation, but before that even, and the persecution that they experience and all of that, that should humble us. And we should make sure that the lenses through which we see life and we live the Christian life are not American lenses, but they are Christian lenses. And as believers, Jesus promised that we would suffer as he suffered. Though not redemptively. Only he did that. And this suffering can take various forms. Indifference, ostracism, loss of friends. People giving you the cold shoulder in various contexts of your life. Loss of a job, loss of family members or relationships. Difficulties in the home because some don't want to follow Jesus. Difficulties with extended family. On and on and on the list goes. And can I submit to you? This suffering, even in our country and even in our state, I suspect for Christians will be the loss of certain rights that we've always taken for granted as believers living in America now. Mark it. Suffering is a part of life for the believer. Appointed for each of God's children is trials, fiery ordeals. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter, Do not be surprised, brethren, at the fiery ordeals among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you suffer for Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? Later on he says because of Christ. Christ suffered. He was the great trailblazer. He set the example and the model for you to follow all the way to the cross. We die to ourselves daily, don't we? Daily. Jesus says, you'll get your share of suffering. But look at verse 40. But to sit on my right or on my left, that is the places of prominence in my kingdom, to sit on my right or my left, those places are not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. That is a passive voice there. Those seats have been reserved. Reserved by whom? Matthew twenty twenty three tells us, for whom it has been prepared by my Father, says Jesus. What you're asking is not mine to give. It has been prepared by my Father, God the Father. Here's another one of those often overlooked insights into the Godhead as far as it pertains to our salvation. 
The Son executes the plan of salvation. The Spirit applies salvation to the heart of the believer. But all of this is God the Father's purpose and plan being carried out in real human history. And as it pertains to the reward, to honor, etc. in the future kingdom, God the Father is the one who has already prepared, who has already settled in heaven, the rewards for His children. An amazing reality. And this is why, brothers and sisters, how we live our lives on earth, even as believers, matters. It matters. We don't bring anything to the table with regards to our justification before God. It's by faith in Jesus' person and work alone. We don't contribute anything to that, even post-conversion. There's no way that you can somehow work your way into more favor with God so that He loves you more. It's a finished work of Christ. But we are saved unto good works, that we would be zealous for good works and display the glory of God on earth. Amen? We are called to live for His glory. And so therefore, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we have this instruction given to believers. Listen, to Christians. Therefore, we also have as our ambition as Christians, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Why? For we must all, believers, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one, Christians, may be recompensed for his deeds in the body that is in this life, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Speaking of the time of reward, the time of the great reckoning, not where we will lose our salvation, for that is based upon the person and the work of Jesus alone. But it matters, beloved, if we are people who are living unto good works, that we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect here in this world, and thus bring glory to God, right? So that's what this is alluding to here. Now moving from the self-seeking request, notice secondly, in verses 41 through 45, the self-deflating rebuke. The self-deflating rebuke, as our Lord always does with His disciples. I love this. He never leaves them in their foolishness. Here's another teaching moment as He prepares them for His suffering and death. But notice, first of all, there's this strong resentment on the part of the rest of the twelve, right? Verse 41. Hearing this, hearing the request of the two, the other ten began to feel indignant with James and John. That's a, indignant, there is a strong emotional reaction of jealous displeasure, of envious outrage, of resentment. The rest of the twelve are not happy with James and John, but here's why they're not happy, here's why they're bitter, why they're resentful, because of the fact that they probably want the same thing. They want the same thing. They're struggling with the same stuff. See, some people wear their self-exalting pride on their sleeve for all to see. Others hide it in their hearts, looking with disdain upon others, all the while craving for the same exact self-glory. Both are just as wicked. Both. Before things could get out of hand, notice, before things can get out of hand between the twelve, Jesus once again seizes on the teaching moment. Verse 42, calling them to, to Himself, I love the imagery there of a, like a father gathering his kids, his naughty kids to himself to instruct and correct them. So our Lord Jesus does here. Boy, he does that every single day for us, doesn't he? 
We might not have Jesus physically here in the same way that the disciples did, but he's amongst us. And every single day when we come to the Word of God for regular, consistent time in His Word and prayer, and we come together with God's people, brothers and sisters, Jesus is teaching us every single moment of the day. That's what He does here with His disciples. Verse 42, He calls them to Himself. He said to them, You know. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is something that you already know from observation, from your experience in dealing with the world. What do they already know from observation? Verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. In this context, Gentiles there are the, the non-Jews, but more specifically, the non-believing world are the Gentiles there. It says, my disciples, as you guys have watched the rulers, the so-called great men of the world, you know from observation, from personal witness, don't you, how they operate, how they, they wield their authority. This is not a surprise. And notice... In verse 42, they don't come alongside of people. They come over people, over them, over them. They dominate. They're authoritarian. They're dictatorial. They wield their influence by lording it over people, over their subjects. Jesus says, you know this. What I'm telling you right now is not something different than you've already observed. And you see, it's not that Authority in and of itself is wrong. It's that wrongful, sinful, domineering, oppressive authority that is evil. We're witnessing that right now in our culture, aren't we? Even by way of our political system. We have parties that are going at it with each other. We have one primary leader who flaunts his power in a very explicit way. And then we have another leader who in a very devious, circumventive way does the same thing. Fighting for power with each other. Back and forth. Back and forth. This is the way of the world, brothers and sisters. And by and large, this is the way that world leaders operate. World leaders don't naturally exercise their God-given authority for the good of their subjects, selflessly giving themselves and of themselves for the good of their subjects. They don't naturally do that. What do they do instead? They use people for their own ends. They exploit to get what they want. This is not only the case in America, but all over the world in so many countries. In every country to some extent or another. You know the reason why people, even in the midst of these major natural disasters in other countries, don't have what they need for basic sustenance is not because there aren't enough resources in our world. I mean, there are tons and tons of resources coming out of America, especially for some of these countries where people are in need. And it's corrupt governments who hold back containers of medicine and resources and food for people because they're corrupt and they want to exploit people rather than help and be about the good of other people. This is the way of the world. And Jesus says in verse 43, but it is not this way among you, disciples. It is not this way among you. 
You who are followers of me, you who are Christians, you who are part of the kingdom of God, you are to be different than the world. He's been teaching them this again and again and again, hasn't he? Back in Mark 9.35, he said, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a little child and spoke to them about serving others like that little child. The way of the world is not the way of the kingdom. And beloved, listen to me. There is no place for domineering, self-serving people in the church. There's no place for authoritarian Dominating, dominating leaders in the church, beginning with me. There's no place for self-seeking, proud lay people in the church, laity in the church who seek prominence before others, looking only to be served rather than to serve. That is not Christ-like. Jesus says the way of the kingdom is starkly different than that of the world. Look at what he adds in verse 43. But by contrast, whoever, this is for anyone, for anyone listening, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. And whoever wants to be first among you shall be slave of all. Oh, this is so important, brothers and sisters, for us to not lose sight of. Notice, contrary to what we might think, Jesus does not condemn the wish or the desire to be great in the sense of wanting to excel for the glory of God. He doesn't condemn that, does he? He doesn't condemn the desire for significance. After all, who wants to be status quo here today? Who wants to get to the end of their life and know that your life counted for nothing? That you did nothing for the Lord. Who wants to just be average? To just be surviving in the Christian life? To just be normal? Who wants that amongst us? None of us as believers should want that. All of us should desire to excel still more. As Paul says to the Thessalonians, the first Thessalonians, excel in your sanctification, believers. You're doing great. Excel still more. You're loving one another. Excel still more in your love for one another, Thessalonian believers. They say, oh, you're doing good. Just, just, hey, just stay status quo. Be safe, secure. Don't make any decisions in your sacrifice for other people that might bring a, a cost and a price to your life. He says, no, excel still more. Love one another all the more. Which one of us don't want to get to the end of life, our earthly life, And hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I want to hear those words more than anything else. And so Jesus says, you want to become great in the eyes of God? Here's the way of the kingdom. Be a servant. Diakonos, from which we get our word deacon. Be a servant. You want future greatness? Be one who serves others, who lays down your life for others. True greatness is reserved and appointed by God in the future on the day of reward for believers, for those who do good, who spent themselves in life being helpful and doing good to others. 
Galatians 6, 9 and 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to those of the household of the faith. Do what is intrinsically beneficial for others, especially to the family of God. Sinclair Ferguson writes, quote, Greatness in the kingdom is attained by the measure of beneficent, that is, loving services voluntarily rendered unto others. I love that. But Jesus goes even further. He says, you want to be first in the eyes of God? Verse 44, be a slave of all. Doulos, slave. This is even lower than a slave. It doesn't get any lower than this, brothers and sisters. This is the complete self-abandonment of you and I. This, this refers to completely foregoing your own rights and privileges for the good of others. It doesn't get any lower than a slave. And they would have understood the imagery very well in New Testament times of what that meant. Be a slave of all. William Barclay says, The words of all enlarges the scope of service to, to all to whom we might be helpful. Preeminence in Christ's kingdom is attained through primacy and self-sacrificing services voluntarily rendered. I love that. This is not forced or coerced or guilt-driven service. It is joyful and voluntary service for the glory of Jesus in the light of the fact that Jesus laid down his life for you. That's the fuel, isn't it? Christ And he says, the test was not for the Christian. What service can I extract from others? But what service can I give? May I render for others? I love that. So good, isn't it? Because we're wired to basically live for ourselves. To have people serve us. To have people go out of their way to serve us. We may do this during the week. Between Sundays, reaching out to no one to see how anyone is doing. Being so focused and fixated on our own trials, our own busyness, everything that we have going on, not reaching out to to anyone, not praying for anyone, not seeking to meet any needs of others, spiritual or emotional or physical. We may live very selfishly during the week, but you know what? We can do this on Sunday mornings as well. What do many of us do or some of us do? Instead of arriving on Sunday mornings, looking to serve others, looking to reach out to someone else, looking to encourage someone with a word of encouragement, looking to touch base with others to see how they're doing, how their week is going, we basically just come in, listen to the sermon, and we go home with no practical application, right? Instead of being others-oriented, we oftentimes expect others to do for us. See, we have to be very careful as believers to be living brothers and sisters according to kingdom principles and not being fashioned after the world. The world is, this is the age of the selfie, isn't it? The selfie. The age of self-pampering, self-worship, self-idolatry, self-exaltation, self-promotion. But what Jesus says here is Christians, followers of Christ, you are to be different. Christians are people who serve, who give their lives for others, not because they have to, but because they long to. 
as Jesus did. Not for what we can get out of it, but because love is the goal, isn't it? Love and ultimately the glory of God is the goal for doing good, for doing what is beneficial for others. It's what should fulfill us. Give us a sense of significance that we're bringing glory to God as we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and serve the world around us. Let us be praying for that. God would do that in our hearts and lives. Let me ask you today, rather than than pouting about your circumstances, rather than, than complaining or grumbling about your circumstances, rather than feeling sorry for yourself, can I ask you today, how often have you found yourself being mindful of others this week and what others are going through? The struggles of others. The burdens of others. Whose burdens are you carrying as well by the grace of God? How are you praying for others? How are you considering the the needs of others, of a spiritual, physical nature? When you get those church-wide emails, putting out opportunities to serve in different capacities in our church, spiritual or physical or whatever they might be, what do you do? Delete. Delete. Ignore them. Just glance over it. You know what? Someone else will meet that need. I'm sure someone else can do that. Or do you want to jump in and help? Do you want to use your gifts and your abilities for the glory of God? Do you want to even uh, think of someone else who can potentially be gifted in that area that you can encourage them to serve in that capacity? Are you serving Christ by serving God's people, serving the church? See, the way of the kingdom is humble condescension in our service unto God for others. And you know why we ought to be this way? Because of the ultimate example. Look at verse 45. This should be the way for us because this is the way of the king. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Here's your motivation. Here's your gospel-fueled reason for why you should lay down your life for others by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God because of the Son of Man, the one who took upon Himself human nature and became like one of us, though sinless, and went to the cross and died for our sins, brothers and sisters. He gave His life as a a ransom for many. That's language from the slave market where you would pay a price to buy out a slave. And redeem that slave for yourself. That's what Jesus did for us, you see. He gave his life as a ransom for you and I who have trusted in him as our Lord and Savior. The Lord Jesus will never ask us to do something that he hasn't done himself first. That's the motivation that Jesus gives here. Why should you disciples be about being a servant of all and a slave of all? Because that's the pattern that I'm setting before you. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross of Calvary. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for you to purchase you out of the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of light of my Father. Wow. What a leader. What a Savior. What a Lord. What a suffering servant. Amen? To wear the apron of a servant is to be like 
Jesus. It's to be like Him. I love what Paul writes to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. As he says, farewell to them. He writes to these elders, In everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. And here it is. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, I modeled this for you. But you know who the ultimate example is? It's Christ our Lord who says it is more blessed to give than to receive. He modeled that for us all the way to the cross, didn't he? What is true greatness? What is true greatness? It's to lay down our lives for one another. Amen? You know, it was 27 years ago that the Lord saved me. And as a young believer, I was highly untaught, very naive, as a young believer is, very vulnerable. And I knew that I needed investment as a young Christian. People were telling me that. I needed discipleship. And so you know what I began to do? I would begin to just get on my knees all the more and say, God, please show me what it means to walk with you. Send somebody into my life who's going to teach me what it means to walk with you. And then it was at a college retreat that I met a man about eight years older than me at the time who the Lord answered my prayer through. His name is Mark. Or was Mark. And this man, busy as he was, invested into me. He became sort of the college and career shepherd for our our church. His wife began investing into my wife. And I still remember all of those nights when he would leave where he was at, travel about 30 to 45 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes in traffic, after a full day of teaching in South Central L.A. as a substitute teacher, and then going through seminary, and then getting ready to teach on Sundays, he would meet with me every single week, once or twice, in addition to Sundays and Fridays, and he would meet, meet with me tired and exhausted at a Denny's, a local Denny's, to invest into me. To read the Word together to go through good books together, to talk about life and apologetics, defending my faith and all of that. And any struggles that I had, I would bring to to him and we would wrestle through those biblically. I will never forget that investment. You know, God used people like my brother and many others. And beloved, I'm here in large part today, obviously ultimately because of God's hand and His grace, but I'm here today in large part because of him and other people, people, because we are the product of the people who've come before us, right? There's nothing innovative in any one of us. And he was a man who loved his family, loved his wife, loved his kids, very engaged husband, very engaged father. He invested himself as a churchman into pastors, especially pastors not highly touted, pastors who are, who are just faithful men behind the scenes who no one would hear about. He loved to get those guys working together and coming under others who had more experience to train those guys. It's what basically energized him. He was not a perfect man like any of us aren't. But I'll tell you one thing. He was a kingdom-minded man who sought to view everything through a kingdom perspective. And I'm going to tell you something, though the Lord has called him home 
I stand before you today because of many others like him, and I'm sure you would say the same thing. Amen? Beloved, when it's all said and done for you, what will your tombstone read? What does true greatness consist of? I submit to you, I think, from this passage that greatness is not defined by how many possessions you accumulate, how much money you have in your bank account, how many personal fulfillments or accomplishments or goals you have reached in your life. Education, success, having a good business, a good bank account, a good, nice home. Those things in and of themselves are not sinful, but they can be idols in our lives, things that we worship and elevate above God. I submit to you that greatness is measured by the lives that you touch during this lifetime for God's kingdom because people go forever, on forever, not the things that we accumulate in this life. Pursue greatness as defined by this passage. The type of greatness that is shown by our Lord Jesus, who laid down his life for people. He gave his life as a ransom for many, and the many are people, lives. That's who Jesus invested himself into. And that's what we need to do as well. And you know what? For some of us, this means that we need to live more fearlessly for God. Not recklessly, but fearlessly for God, if we're going to invest ourselves into the kingdom of God. For some of us, this needs to, means that we need to overcome our besetting sins by the grace of God through accountability and, and being in regular fellowship with other brothers and sisters who can help us in the life of the, uh, in the Christian race. And yet for others of us, We need to take our attention off of the stuff of this world, which will soon pass away. And you need to be reconciled to God and begin to live for God's glory, to enjoy him forever, beginning in this life. This is what kingdom living means. means. This is what true greatness consists of. That's why Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you, right? Let us be like our Savior, brothers and sisters. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that we know that ultimately, Father, we have one life to live, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Lord, help us to live after the pattern of our great Savior, the great trailblazer, not only of humiliation, but of exaltation. Father, help us to give our lives for one another and, Lord, on mission on this earth. Help us to be about the Great Commission, Lord, especially during these times. Help us not to live complacently. Help us not to live comfortable lives. Help us, even given where you have us in life, older or younger, to be discerning together by your Spirit and through your Word ways that we can invest ourselves into the kingdom and not into the stuff of this earth, Lord. Help us to be people, people as Christ was and continues to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.